Please remain standing and pray with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are such a great and wonderful, good God. What a wonderful creation you've created by the power of your word. Wonderf more wonderfully reconciled through the perfect work of Christ. And we gather today to celebrate Jesus and that wonderful work on the cross. Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, I ask that you use me, your servant. I offer all that I am and have to you, O God. I am a vessel and a tool that you have to use, or else there is nothing for me to say or do. So come, Holy Spirit. Illuminate our minds and our hearts. Lord, that we may be like the Apostle Paul in our world today, shining with the hope of the gospel, radiating the love and the power of Jesus. For your glory, we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we are in the book of Acts. Paul's defense before Agrippa in the court, a weird court case, somehow strange. But Paul is not the only one to have strange court cases. I looked up odd court cases that don't make sense this week, and there were plenty to choose from, believe me. I narrowed it down to a few, and the, one, the ones that caught my attention the most that there was two ladies from Florida who sued McDonald's for $5 million. And their complaint was they had to pay the same price for a quarter pounder without cheese as if it had cheese on it. They wanted a cheese discount. And they lost their case because they could not prove that the cheeseless quarter pounder caused them emotional distress. <laughs> this one is sad. A husband and uh, a man and woman marry and they, they fall, fell in love. They had a child and the child, as in the husband's words, was incredibly ugly and looked nothing like him or his wife. And he began to accuse his wife of cheating on him, at which point his wife disclosed that before they met, she had multiple plastic surgeries. At which point the husband, these are all true, sues his wife on the grounds of false pretenses, claiming she misled him by hiding her cosmetic surgery. And the wife had to pay that husband $120,000. And the one that is the funniest of all, a man decided that he was going to sue Anheuser-Busch for false advertising. He said that he claimed that the beer ads caused him emotional distress mental and mental injury because it showed all these people drinking that beer in wonderful settings, beautiful women engaged in unrestricted merriment, and he said when he drank that beer, none of that happened to him. 
As I told them earlier, if they drank Guinness, you never have that problem. <laughs> but today, Paul is on trial, a weird trial, a trial much like those that do not make sense. He's on trial not for criminal activity, but for hope, hope in good news, hope in the gospel. He's on trial because he believes that God has fulfilled his promise that he made to Abraham's fathers and forefathers. And as God's servants, we are to live out the hope of the gospel. That's why you'll hear Father David and I say this blessing once in a while. We call it the Lake George Blessing from our charismatic Episcopal Church days. That is, as you go out from this place, always remember the gospel, that God is not mad at you, but he loves you, that he's forgiven you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the message our lives have to tell, that God has forgiven us. He's with us, because that hope is powerful, and the lack of that hope can be equally powerful. I'm sure you've been around people. You may be sitting beside one of those people that are negative, that only see the bad, the down, the unpleasantries of life. And it drags you down. But hope is so powerful. I remembered when we were in East Africa, and they would sing this one song for about 45 minutes. It was easy to remember because it was only one line. For 45 minutes, repeat, repeat. It's like a, a record that was just stuck on the same phrase. But they would sing, God is on the throne. Things are getting better. And you're talking about most of those people came out of a mud house that they have to be rebuild every year after the rainy season that the pair of flip-flops they have on are the only shoes they have, that have never seen a toothbrush in their lives, but they had hope that God is on the throne. And their lives was filled with joy. If that's grammatically incorrect, I'm sorry. And if we would ask ourselves today, what is it about us that is absolutely necessary, absolutely worthwhile, and absolutely valuable to everyone in this world? What is it that is absolutely necessary, worthwhile, and valuable? Maybe our good looks. Obviously, you haven't looked in the mirror lately. Maybe our educational achievements. Maybe our social status. Maybe our possessions. What is it that is absolutely necessary for everybody in the world? The gospel. We are in possession of the gospel, and the hope of the gospel is what Paul is on trial with for today. That his entire life had been defined by the commission he received to open eyes, to bring people out of darkness into light, from Satan to God, that they may find forgiveness and a place among those who are being sanctified. 
His life was defined by that. He was there to light up the world with Jesus, to illuminate. That was his directive because sin loves darkness. Have you noticed that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it so wonderful, wonderfully. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And Paul wanted to expose that darkness. This little gospel bulldog decides he's going to take on a wonderful challenge today. And I'm amazed that he says, it is most fortunate that I get to speak to you, Agrippa. I finally got it right. This, the first service, I kept exchanging Agrippa and Paul. I am very proud of myself right now. But he said, I'm fortunate to stand before you today, Agrippa. And I began to think, how in the world would Paul think that? Because Agrippa's backstory has nothing that you would think would be a fortunate opportunity for Paul to be in front of him. Agrippa's great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus as an infant. Agrippa's grandfather beheaded John the Baptist. Agrippa's own father martyred the first apostle James. And Paul says, I am fortunate to be speaking to you, Agrippa, because that's the power of the hope of the gospel, that there is no one out of reach There's no situation too dark that Jesus can't light it up. Paul knew it well because he saw that light and he recounted it for us today. That it was brighter than the noonday sun and they saw that light and they fell down on their faces. And that light is Jesus. And there's nothing greater than him. And we are called today to live this life of hope in the gospel, the hope of the gospel. And today we see different characters, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, and Paul. The first three tell us how to live life in the dark. We don't want to live life in the dark, but in case you are thinking about it, I'm going to tell you how not to do it. So we see from Festus and Agrippa the first thing that causes us to live in the dark and not in the light of the hope of the gospel is the wrong view of success. These guys, they had it all. They, they, they were really living the dream, you would think. They had positions and possessions. They had status. They had education. They had the authority to really do and command whatever they wanted. And then there's Paul. He's lost everything by the world's standards. He was the Hebrew superhero. Now he's their most wanted criminal. And yet Paul was the most successful one in the courtroom today. Even in chains. Because success is not tied to things. Doesn't matter your position. Doesn't matter how much money you have. If you have too much, come and see me. I can help you with that or possessions, but success 
is faithfulness to God's will. Don't let that sink in for a minute. Success is faithfulness to God's will, even if it seems ridiculous at the time. And it's hard for us to see that in our lives because we want to fit God's will in our category with our expectations and our template of what our life is supposed to look like. And God doesn't always do that. And I was reminded, because today the gospel reading happened in this story that I'm about to tell you, about me and Scotland. Before we moved from the Philippines to here, there was an opportunity to go take over a church plant in Scotland, in Edinburgh, which we, I went for a visit. I said, God, you've got it right this time. <laughs> a land flowing with delicious beverage. <laughs> Malty, peaty. Wow. Haggis on every corner. <laughs> and right across the bay, the pinnacle of pinnacles of why this was the place. St. Andrews. The old course. All the greats have walked there except me. <laughs> In my dreams. And as we were praying for this, and it didn't, it didn't seem like it was as much as I wanted to beat God into my submission, it didn't work. And the gospel reading that morning at a church I visited was the gospel today. And when Jesus said, behold, it is I, don't be afraid. The Lord whispered in my heart, that's your life. It's me. Don't be afraid if it's not what you expect. Don't be afraid if you get what you really didn't want. Because it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And faithfulness to following that still, small voice of the Spirit. It all goes back to those same two words Jesus told his disciples at the very beginning. Follow me. And success is following him. What else can we learn to be dim from Agrippa and Festus? What makes us dark? Trying to impress others while forgetting God. These three, they were probably very good candidates for Robin Leach's old TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You might remember that? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? I'm dating myself. It's okay. They were rich. They were trying to probably outdo each other with their opulence and their authority and their big-headedness. They had very little to no thought of God in their life. They were in the trap of trying to make awesome impressions on people, trying to feel more important than they were. And that's an easy trap for us. 
especially we try to impress those people who have supervisor attached to their name. And we want to make them happy and impress them. And I found out in life, when you try to impress someone for the sake of impressing them, it usually ends up to be a mess. We were surrounded by very good friends in the Philippines, and most of them were well off and played golf. And uh, they were extra good to me because they never let me pay for golf. So I, I, I really love those guys. <laughs> and every year, Joseph, my really good friend, his company, a big company, had a like really over-the-top golf tournament to impress clients and business people and new clients. So everybody was on their toes to be impressive. And one of his associate vice presidents was there, and I will never forget this man. We were all on the first tee, and everybody was teeing off, and they announced his name, and he comes walking up there looking like he just left the PGA Tour. I mean, he was decked out from head to, head to toe like a tour pro. I got to get my thought back. And uh, he had the, the whole Tour Pro leather bag, brand new Callaway golf clubs. And in the Philippines, this stuff is like double the price it should be. And he looked the part. And he strolled up to the first tee. There's his vice president on the first tee. Looking the part. Impressing everybody with his appearance. He rears back a swing, he swings and totally misses the golf ball. He chuckles, swings again. What do you think happened? Another miss. For the third time, misses the ball. Finally, on his fourth attempt, he makes contact and everybody claps their hands until they see it rolls about 40 yards down the fairway. Because when we're there just to impress people, nobody's impressed. We usually expose ourselves. But if we do live for the audience of one, God, doesn't matter what other people think. Doesn't matter how other people see us. Because we're at peace with ourselves and with our creator and with our Redeemer. Live for the audience of one, for God. Isaiah 66 says, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. Sounds like Paul. In chains, still trying to convert Agrippa. What else can we learn from these guys how to be dim in the light of the gospel. From Festus, right in the middle of Paul's defense, Festus silences him and says, he's crazy. You're talking nonsense, Paul. It's ridiculous what you're saying. And like Festus, if we have an overemphasis on reason without factoring in God's power, we will never live out the light of the gospel. Festus wanted logic and philosophy. His mistake was he didn't figure in God. God, 
the one who said, I am that I am, the one who framed the universe with the power of his word, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. We cannot place God's power as second to our logic and reason. I'm not saying don't use common sense. If you have it, use it. But God is always greater. God is always more. Two times during the service, we hear the same greeting. The Lord be with you. At the, before the reading of the word and the Eucharist, the sacrament of Holy Communion. Why, in those two places, does the church say this? The Lord be with you. Oh, I feel so good. God's with me. No. It's to remind you, you're about to come into contact with God through his word, through the sacrament. And it's to remind us that God is with us. We come into contact with him. And it is also to raise our expectancy of him doing mighty things in our lives. It's not just there needlessly because it sounded good to the early church fathers. It's to remind us, expect God's power in your life. Don't settle for less than that. Expect his power. What's the last thing we see from Festus and Agrippa that caused their life to be dark in the gospel, the hope of the gospel? Quite simply, it's called peer pressure. Agrippa is there. Paul backs him in a corner and says, Agrippa, I know you believe the prophet. And Agrippa just kind of chuckles it off and says, do you think you're going to make me a Christian in these few words? Ha, 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 ha. He joked away his opportunity for eternal life. For us, peer pressure is real. You can't deny it. We've all been in school, some of us still in school, on our workplace, among friends. We don't want to be weird or uncool or out of the loop or whatever they call it these days. But the reality is, you're weird. Look around. You're weird. Don't get mad at me. I didn't say it first. Moses said it way before me. For you're a holy people unto the Lord, your God. And the Lord has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself. And I'm glad God said weird. But the word peculiar there doesn't mean weird in the sense that we're thinking. It means restriction to an individual or a group. Paul knew his life was restricted to Jesus. Whatever he was doing, it was Jesus. Whatever he was saying, it was Jesus. When he was off having a good time, it was with Jesus. We're to be weird, not worrying about what other people think. Several years ago, a group called DC Talk. Anybody ever heard of these guys? Come on. Let's get on with the good Christian music now. See, I do listen to Christian music once in a while. But they wrote a song 
several years ago, a great album, one of those rare albums where every song on the album was excellent. The name of the album was Jesus Freak. And the second verse, I love it because it has a Japanese word in it and I like Japanese things. But it says, the second verse says this, Kamikaze, my death is gain. I've been marked by my maker, a peculiar display. The high and lofty, they see me as weak because I won't live and die for the power they seek. And then the chorus, what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find out it's true? I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguising the truth. Paul didn't care what Agrippa and Festus and Bernice and everybody else in that room thought. He wasn't embarrassed by Jesus. So how do we live like Paul? How do we become illuminators of gospel hope in our dark world? First of all, you see in the life of Paul a very crucial principle. Intentional surrender. Philippians 3, Paul said, I count everything lost because of knowing Jesus. Intentional surrender. And there are three areas that St. Ignatius speaks about, about surrendering, that have really ministered and challenged me a lot over the past few years. And he says there's three areas specifically to surrender. Our memory, if you still have it, just kidding. Understanding and will. Why memory? Because some of us have memories that have scarred us. Surrender it. Some of us look back and go, whoo, Father David, those were the good old days. We in a mess now. <laughs> that messes us up. So offer the memory to God and learn what she, you need to learn from him. Our understanding. Because, see, I still don't understand why Scotland was such a bad thing. But it's not for me to understand. I remember very clearly when something was going on and I said, God, why? And almost like the super dad that he is, he went into full dad mode. And I could almost see him, you don't get to ask me why. You are creation. I am creator. So be quiet. I had to offer my understanding to God. Because one day, it will all become clear. That day is up to God. Our memory, our understanding, our will. Intentionally surrendering our will. God gave us the freedom to choose so we would freely choose to give it back to him. It's just that simple. And the one thing we struggle with is me, mine, myself, my wants. I want this. I need that. Let it go into God's hands. Surrender that will to him and only ask for his love and grace. 
Because if you have those two things, you don't need anything else. Love and grace. Because you see, one writer said, saving faith is beholding and embracing all that God is as supremely satisfying. And if you are filled with God's love and grace, you'll be satisfied. Secondly, what do we learn from Paul? There is no Christianity without cherishing Christ. He said, I don't want to hold on to anything if it's not Jesus. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Jesus is that treasure. He's it. He has to be the most cherished thing in our life. What else is there compared to Jesus? That old song, I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-scarred hand. I'm getting all the words mixed up, but they're in there. But I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Because I want to let you in on a little secret. Everything we got right now, it's going to be gone. Somebody else will get it. Anna's already eyeballing my guitar amp. It's 1970 vintage tube amplifier. I don't blame her. But I'm not gone yet. (laughs) Jesus is forever. The relationship we have with him is for eternity. I'm not going to be food service supervisor in heaven. Man. I'm going to be Jesus' friend and brother, saint. There's no Christianity if you don't cherish Christ. If he is not everything to you, folks, he's nothing. Lastly, Paul said in verse 22, I am here with the help that comes from God. If we want to be bright with the gospel and the hope of the gospel, everything has to be done by God and for God. Not self-centered, not self-exalting, not self-esteeming egoism, but our life's motto is to God be the glory. Really, we just have to live out the great amen that we hear. Every Sunday. By him. I'm doing this by him. I'm doing this with him. I'm doing this in him. That's your life. Anytime you try to rest on your own strength. You're not living. And if our life is not pointing always to Jesus. You're not living. You're just a biological existence. 
But if your life always points to Jesus, you're living the Zoe life, the life characterized by the quality of God. Today, Paul's on trial for his hope because he received a commission from Jesus on the way to Damascus. And that commission is our commission, to open eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are being sanctified by faith. How? By being intentionally surrendered. Our memory, our understanding, our will by cherishing Jesus above all else and be by living by God and for God. Not chasing after Agrippa and Festus, empty success, exalting reason over God and giving in to peer pressure. Paul was on fire for Jesus famous quote by John Wesley, one writer asked him, what is the secret of your success? And Wesley said, I get alone with God in prayer. Good. He sets me on fire. And people come to watch me burn. Because everybody's attracted to a fire. Today, are you on fire? Are you burning with the hope of the gospel? I leave you with a poem. I'm feeling very literary today. And it says this. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are read by more than a few. But the one that is most read and commented on is the gospel according to you. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Do men read his truth? And his love in your life? Or has yours been full of malice and strife? Does your life speak of evil? Or does it ring true? Say, what is the gospel according to you? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.